We'll be looking into the book of Isaiah today and then again a little bit later. So if you'll turn to Isaiah, the seventh chapter, that is where we will begin. There is no luck in the world. Now, I know we often say good luck, but uh, we know there's no th- such thing as luck. There's no entity out there that is floating around, and, and sometimes it lands upon us, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, there's no such thing as fate. There is only the sovereignty of God and his perfect plan, who from all time has decided how this world shall be ordered. And, and there is not, and we've said this before, there's not one single molecule that's out there running loose that he doesn't know about or isn't aware of or is not under his direct control. Now that in no way hinders or conflicts with the exercise of your will and my will. It no way conflicts with how fast you're going to drive home after church or where you're going to go or what you won't do or what you will wear tomorrow or some of the decisions that you will make or will not make. Now, I can't explain it, but the sovereignty of God and the exercise of our wills go hand in hand. And whether you choose to go right or choose to go left on your way home, whether you stop at the stop sign or you roll through it, that still serves the sovereign purposes of our Heavenly Father. Did you decide to roll through that stop sign? Yes, you did. Did he make you roll through the stop sign? No, he didn't. Okay. The only time... Being good reformed believers, the only time the exercise of our free will does not come into accord is when our Heavenly Father saves us. He does the saving. Now, how will you live out that salvation? That is the work of you and the Holy Spirit wrestling and and working with your own will and, and the things of what the Lord wants us to do. So it should come as no surprise as we look at Scripture and even the early pages of the Old Testament that we find hints at what the Heavenly Father would do to bring his plan to fulfillment. Now understand, it has been from all time his plan that Christ would come and give his life to atone for the sin of those whom God had called, who understood what it meant by the gift of faith to live out the things of Christ, whose hearts would be cleansed by this wonderful grace of our Heavenly Father. So we see that in the early chapters of of Genesis, there is the offering of the sinless lamb, the lamb without blemish. And then we see that fulfillment in the New Testament as Jesus Christ is the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then we also see in other places throughout the Old Testament in the early times that God alone is the orderer of all things. So it should be no surprise that in the end he brings all things, as Galatians says, in the fullness of time to a creation and a point where his perfect plan has come to fulfillment. And here at this time in Advent, we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ who comes the first time, how? As the Savior. Next time he comes as the Judge. So we much would rather have him as the Savior than as the judge. So as we hear the things of God, be reminded that he comes and offers us this great gift of salvation. And it has been foretold from all time that he would come in this fashion. 
It should be no surprise to us, and certainly it is no surprise to our Heavenly Father who has planned all this out, nor can there be any surprises in our actions. Nothing takes him by surprise. So let's pray a little bit before we go any further. Heavenly Father, come upon us today as we look into your word, as we are reminded of your perfect plan and how it is fulfilled in these words written so long ago. And how it can be fulfilled in our hearts as well. How when this child who came into this world in a far away, out of the way place, in a land that was uh, not very attractive, yet that is the place that you chose for your son to come into this world. Emmanuel, God with us, the Prince of Peace. And how he now lives in the hearts of those who have received him as Lord and Savior, whose lives have been changed by this wonderful gift the grace of Jesus Christ. As we read your word and as we study it today, bring these things to our mind and make them real in our hearts that we would not be shy about living out this gift you have given to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the first Sunday of what begins the season of Advent. Advent is uh, the Latin word for coming. It is a season that we celebrate, and not everybody does that. And, and you know, I grew up Presbyterian, so uh, every Christmas we had the candles and we had the, everything and we had Advent, and not everybody uh, does that. But we make a, a pretty big deal of it because it is a time to remember that God extended himself and reached down to us and gave us this gift of Jesus Christ. It culminates in one of my favorite things in the world, and that is worship on Christmas morning. Okay, Now, if you've paid any attention to, to things that I've written or, or hinted at, it is my contention that Christmas ought to be the last Sunday in December every year. Okay, And I know that throws a monkey wrench in everybody's Christmas morning activities and things, but what is Christmas about? Okay, And I think we ought to be here and, and worship on Christmas morning. Um, so that's my horse. I'm going to beat that for a while. Okay? Um, so it culminates in our worshiping on Christmas morning this year, which is a great opportunity just to give thanks to our Heavenly Father. And even though the angel came to Mary and told her that she would bear a son who would be Savior of the world, this was foretold years, generations prior to this, that this is what would happen. Scripture is replete with veiled hints and outright examples of saying Christ will come. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He'll be born in this fashion. He will be the Savior of the world. We turn to Isaiah today, and often this is called the gospel according to Isaiah. Okay, For he is known as basically the fifth evangelist, because so much of what he writes is salvific in nature. It is redemptive. Such was the context of where he was at that time. His people needed salvation. They needed redemption, but he also points again and again to the things of Christ. And we'll see that as we look through this. Now, Isaiah lived some 500 years before the birth of Christ. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered at Qumran in 1947, one of the scrolls that was found there was called the Great Isaiah Scroll. The Great Isaiah Scroll. Um, it had been buried at about 100 
B.C. or written, I'm sorry, it had been written at about 100 B.C. and buried by the Essenes. The Essenes were a kind of an, an aesthetic cult. They were uh, denied themselves, go and live off in the desert, and they lived in this little area with lots of caves. And that was about 70 A.D. when the Romans were coming through, and they decided that to protect all of these writings and all of these scrolls, they would take them and bury them back in these caves. So there they stood sat in jars, undisturbed for some almost 2,000 years until 1947 when some little goat-herding young boy who was chasing a lost goat went into a cave and found all of these scrolls. And out they came. And then they began to study them for quite some time. It was a treasure trove of Old Testament writings. Now, the greatest of these is the great Isaiah scroll. It is some 24 feet long. It encompasses 55 columns, which are, is how they measured them, but it includes all 66 books of Isaiah. All 66 books of Isaiah. Now, it's, as I said, it was dated at about 100 B.C., so it had already been buried. Uh, it was already 170 years old when they buried it. Now, why is that significant? It is significant because this scroll was written 100 years before Jesus was born. And it was a copy of other copies that go back until the point where Isaiah himself put it down on parchment. So the comparisons between the ancient document, the great Isaiah scroll, and this book that we have in front of us today, whatever translation it would be, whether New American Standard or English Standard Version or King James, anything like that, what that tells us is that what we have here is an outstanding translation. Because what we found in the great Isaiah scroll is almost word for word what we have today. Given the variations of translation and passing it down and all of that, what we discovered is that this is an outstanding translation of the book of Isaiah. So the prophet Isaiah is the major prophet in the Old Testament. 500 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah predicted that a son would be born, a male human being, and he said it would be born of a virgin. Chapter 7, verse 14. That's where we are today. Let me read that passage. This should be, it's Christmas. This should be one of those things that we have fixed in our mind. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. God in flesh, truly God, truly man. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth and forevermore. The Lord of hosts will perform this, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah said he will be born of the seed of David, but his kingdom will be perfect and eternal. Perfect and eternal. Two characteristics that are, that are known only by God. There are two characteristics that God alone holds, perfect and eternal. Isaiah chapter 11 says the Messiah will come as a shoot out of the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Even more amazing is that Isaiah was a prophet to the people of God, the Jewish people, yet he said this will be a sign to the Gentiles and to many nations. And eventually the Lord will collect his people from all the corners of the earth and bring them together later on in chapter 11 of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53 describes the purpose and manner and method of his death. 
Okay? This is the passage, the great chapters concerning the suffering servant that we'll look at at another time. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah predicted he would be spat upon, beaten, his face marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. The Gospels record that Jesus was beaten, he was slapped, he was punched, his beard was plucked out by its roots, his flesh was torn from his back. Isaiah chapter 49 says he was hated without cause. Jesus was without guilt. What did Pontius Pilate do? He says, I can find no fault in this man. He said, I wash my hands of it. I wash my hands of this. He was executed for the sins of his people, just like the prophet Isaiah said he would. He made his grave with the wicked. He was executed between two thieves and with the rich in his death. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man. Isaiah's historic and prophetic perspective is literally inspired because what we see, all of this happened prior to the birth of Christ. This was not added to the scroll after the birth of Christ because it was already stashed away. So what we see is that Isaiah was prophetic in everything that he said about the coming of Christ, his birth and eventually his death. So with all this in our minds, we're going to look at a couple of these passages in Isaiah that point to the birth of our Messiah. They are, in all probability, passages we're all familiar with. I mean, at this time of year, we go through certain passages and we are reminded of the great promises that God has made and how he has fulfilled them in the things of Christ. Some 500 years before Christ was born, Isaiah said he would come. He would be God with us, the Prince of Peace. Emmanuel. So Isaiah is probably one of the greatest books of grace in the Old Testament, perhaps in Scripture as a whole. Nowhere else in the Old Testament do we get such a picture of the grace of God as in this book of Isaiah. It's often been called, as I said, the fifth evangelist. There's so much of the gospel of Jesus Christ included within the work of Isaiah. Now, a couple interesting facts about Isaiah, just so we understand the background. Because the background of what he has is very important for us to know. Because this prophecy has an immediate context. And that is dealing with King Ahaz. But it also has a prophetic fulfillment, which comes to fulfillment in the things of Christ and his birth. So, most of the things we know from Isaiah are from tradition. His name comes from the Hebrew verb, Yasha, which means to save. It's been traditionally thought that Isaiah was perhaps of royal birth, perhaps even a scribe. He had so much interaction with the kings at that time. He was the prophet to the kings. Uh, Perhaps he was even the cousin of King Uzziah. Uh, He had a wife and he had two sons. And the names of those sons, as often the Lord does with his prophets, has a role to play in the prophecy that he gives. His oldest son was named Sher Jashub, which means a remnant will return. And his younger son was called Meher Shalahash Baz. Imagine opening the back door and yelling, dinner's ready, Meher Shalah Baz. His name means quick to plunder and swift to spoil. And these names come into play in the later prophecies of Isaiah dealing with the Messiah. Now, working within the royal court, Isaiah was there for four kings, probably some 50 years he prophesied. 
He was there for King Uzziah, King Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah. And for, the, for our purposes, the most important thing to remember about Isaiah is his mention of the need of salvation for his people. Salvation for his people. They needed to repent and turn back to the Lord and look to him for deliverance, which obviously they weren't doing because Isaiah comes and brings that message. When you look at the Messianic prophecies, we will see why it is true that Isaiah stresses salvation so much. There are so many here that stress redemption and the Redeemer to come. Now Ahaz, the the king that deals specifically with chapter 7, King Ahaz is listed as one who did not do right in the sight of God. Now that's a bad way to be remembered. Okay, There are two ways to be remembered as kings. One, he did right in the sight of God. Two, he did not do right in the sight of God. If you did right in the sight of God, you destroyed the high places, you, you stopped idol worship, you, you, did, you had temple worship in the right fashion. If you did not do right in the sight of God's eyes, you let the people run wild, you perhaps even like King Ahaz, he was, we'll see in a minute, involved yourself in idol worship, even to the detriment of your own family. We'll see what I mean here in just a second. Ahaz was not an atheist by any means. He believed in God, but to hedge his bet, he also believed in other gods and wanted to make sure that just in case there was some power in these other gods, particularly Moloch, one of these pagan deities, he would work to appease these other gods as well. Second Kings 18 in particular demonstrates this for us when Moloch, uh, the, the uh, pagan god of the Ammonites, um, was established as one of the deities in Judah. So what would happen right outside the walls of Jerusalem, Ahaz set up this statue, this big bronze statue of Moloch. And at the base of that statue was a fire that would rage on and on and on. And Ahaz, along with many others, took their firstborn child and sacrificed them in the fires to the god Moloch. Okay, that tells you how far Ahaz had fallen. Here is the one who was the king of the people of God, but yet he was taking his firstborn son and throwing them in the fire as, as an offering to this statue who had no power, who had no authority, but yet he was looking to that God and not to the one true God. So superstition was everywhere. People would take their gold and the silver and they would melt it down and they'd make these own little idols and they set them up in their house and they would worship these idols. And and Ahaz, in, 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 in his narrowness, even barred the door of the temple and refused to worship God in the temple. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, he cleaned out all of the valuable things in the temple and sent them off to Tiglath-Pileser, the the, uh, king of the Assyrians, to appease him in an effort to get on his good side. Okay, So he was trusting in men. He was not trusting in God. God had put him on the throne. God had saved his people again and again and again. And Ahaz went, but that doesn't mean anything to me. I'm going to trust in the Assyrians. And he actually sent a note to the king of Assyria with all that gold, and he said, I am your servant. Okay? He didn't get on his knees and go to the temple before his creator, before the one true God, and say, I am your servant. Will you come and deliver your people as you had done so many times before? He fixed his eyes on a human solution, not on the solution that was right in front of him. 
So the people were setting up these own, their own gods, and in fact, what was worse, they weren't just worshiping these little creations of their own. They were going to necromancers and mediums and spiritualists and were seeking out words from the dead. Okay? Necromancy means dealing with the dead. Okay? And, and that is, I read a, a statistic long ago that more people in the church were turning to their horoscope to find out what they should do that day before turning to God's word to find out what they should do that day. Now, you don't have to put up your hand. I uh, Don't put up your hand. But are you turning to the horoscope page in the paper before you turn to God's word to find out how you should live and what you should do? How do my stars align today? Hmm, gee. Who cares how the stars align? What does the Lord say for you today? How should you live in obedience to his word? That's what's important. They didn't particularly care. They were turning to what was demonic. They were turning away from the things of God to the things of demons, necrology, spiritualists, mediums. So Isaiah comes onto this scene to warn Ahaz that he better get his stuff together or God will bring judgment upon him. Now what happens when you remove true worship? What happens when you take true worship out of the life of a group of people? People will worship something and false worship comes in. Remember, Ahaz had barred the door to the temple and no longer worshipped, in fact, cleaned out the temple. False worship was coming in, even demonic worship. Well, let's see what happens in Judah in chapter 7 and 8 here. Now, remember, chapter 6, just turn back one page. Let me read a little bit out of the first portion of chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. This is Isaiah's great vision of the holiness of God. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Remember, there is no punctuation in Hebrew. So, in effort to make a point... They repeat it. And this is what they repeat three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Not just the temple. I mean, the train of his, temp- the train of his robe fills the temple. The earth is full of his glory. The entire earth, all of creation is full of his glory. And when Isaiah has this vision, he says, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Jump down to seven. But he touched my mouth with it, this hot tongue, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. And the Lord is saying, he's this, you're going to send this message to the people, and they are not going to pay any attention to you, and you're going to do it for 50 years, and they will not turn to you. Now, flip the page over to chapter 7. These are dreadful times for Ahaz. Two kings want to come and invade Judah. King Rezin of Aram, look at verse, uh, chapter, one, chapter 7, verse 1. 
Now it came about in those days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Razan, king of Aram, Aram is also another name for Syria, and Pekah, which was from Israel, the northern kingdom, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war. So Ahaz has a choice. I'm going to get destroyed by these two guys. What do I do? So remember, he sided with Tiglath. Pelesar, the king of Assyria. And he gave all the gold that he had, and he wrote that note and said, I'm your servant, come and protect me. Come and protect this kingdom. He basically sold all that he was to the devil. Sold out his people to the devil, gave away everything that was important for the hope and trust in human security. He had given up on God, but God had not given up on him yet. So he sends Isaiah to Ahaz. Now, Ahaz is a basket case. You have to understand. He thinks everything is coming to an end. And he sends Isaiah for this message of hope. Let me read a little bit here. Verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, take care and be calm, have no fear, do not be faint-hearted because of those two stubs of smoldering firebrands. That's the Lord being nice and saying, you know what? These people think they're going to invade you. They think they're going to take over you. But you should have no fear because their plans are not going to come to fulfillment. Because my plan takes precedence. Verse 5. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand nor shall it come to pass. These are the plans of men. Do you think they can thwart the Almighty God? He says they shall not come to pass. Verse 8, for the head of Aram is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramallah. And here's the key for Ahaz. The end of verse 9, if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Okay? God has just said, their plans will come to nothing. But if you don't believe my word, you shall not last against them. And this was the moment for Ahaz. Will I trust the Lord or will I trust in men? And and the Lord has already told Isaiah, I give you this great gift. Tell Ahaz to confirm this, I'll give him a sign. He can ask for any sign that he wants. Any sign, whether it be in heaven or whether it be on earth. If he asks for a sign, I shall give it to him. How many of us have wanted a sign from God? Okay, Lord, would you just give me a sign if this is right? You know, we say we put out the fleece and, 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 and we get up in the morning and we see what, what has happened to our fleece. You know, if we're Gideon, uh, then he had guts enough to ask the Lord for a second sign. Well, here the Lord says, I will give you a sign. Ask for anything. What, what could it have been? I mean, what would you ask for from the Lord for a sign? Would you see the sun go backwards? Would you see a tree shrink? You know, just, just think up something that was fantastic, something that only God could do. Now, you don't want a sign 
that could be mistaken as something that man could do. You want a sign that could only be seen as the Lord's supernatural power. And Isaiah says, Ahaz, ask for anything in heaven or on earth, and the Lord shall do it. And you know what Ahaz says? Oh, who am I to trouble the Lord with a sign? Okay, he, he faints this piety, and he says, I, I won't ask the Lord for a sign. Because what would happen if Ahaz asked for a sign and then got it? He would know that he had done wrong and would have to change. So he says, oh, I'm not even going to ask for a sign. Now, we have seen, obviously, in John chapter 11 that we looked at previously, the Lord has done great things and people have turned a blind eye to it. Lazarus came out of the grave and what did that make people do? Hate Jesus even more. So Ahaz says, I don't want a sign. Who am I to ask the Lord for a sign? And Isaiah says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And here it is. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, the birth of a human child is no big thing. Uh, saying as a man. okay, uh, It happens all the time. But... Do virgins give birth to children? No. That sign could only come from the Lord. Now, the whole purpose of this, see, is those enemies of Judah want to remove the line of David from the throne. And the Lord says, you know what? My plan is that the line of David will be on the throne for all eternity. So a human child could not be on the throne for all eternity. He says, a virgin shall conceive and you shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning what? God with us? This is the sign, unmistakable. It is from God. There is no doubt this is the power of God demonstrated. Now, does it come to fruition in Ahaz's life? No. But this is the promise that God's sovereign plan will be worked out for all eternity. The throne of David shall be filled with someone from the line of David, and we know that name to be Jesus. God revealed to the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before the birth of Christ what would happen. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, some people doubt that this is translated actually a virgin. My Hebrew is bad. Alma is also a word for a young woman. But if a young woman conceived and bore a son, that's no, nothing out of the ordinary. But for a woman who was a virgin to conceive and bear a child, that is the work of God alone. And when we get to Matthew chapter 1, we see that the Greek can only be translated meaning a virgin. So in the midst of certain destruction, in the midst of a king who is faithless, in a king who turns his back on the things of God, God is faithful to his people, and to demonstrate that, he sends a sign which we celebrate today. That's the birth of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, not by the work of man, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come and we see this hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. We see this as, as this document from Isaiah is found. That it was written long before the birth of Christ. 
We see its authenticity. We see its prophetic power. We see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Lord, we are reminded of the things going on in this world. The people who turn their back on you, even in the clear, clear evidence of your power and your work, yet they close their eyes to you. In fact, they even turn to the things of Satan and seek truth there instead of coming to your word and finding the power and the grace and the mercy there. Sometimes even in our own hearts, Lord, we are more willing to trust in the things of men than to wait upon you, than to cling to the things of Scripture. But, Lord, we see this great evidence that nothing is happening that is outside of your control. Even though in our mind and in our eyes we might see chaos, But really, if we look through the things of Scripture and we look through the eyes of faith, we see your hand working it out. We don't always understand it. We don't particularly always appreciate your timing because it is not what we think should happen, but yet it is perfect. Lord, King Ahaz was looking for a sign that would deliver him right then and there. And Isaiah says, it will come. And this is the guaranteed plan of our Heavenly Father, and nothing can thwart that plan. Gracious Lord, you have a plan for each of us. You have placed us here today that we might hear of the fulfillment of this prophecy in the person of Jesus Christ. He did not remain this baby. He grew. He grew in stature before men and and, and wisdom and was pleasing in your sight He was your son. He eventually gave his life that we might know the forgiveness of sins. And you have brought us here today to be reminded of that, perhaps to hear it for the first time. That we might find what our heart's greatest desire is. What we were created for, and that is our relationship with you. That you have provided the way for our sins to be cleansed. Our hearts to be filled with this peace that we can find in no other place except in our Savior, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Come today, Heavenly Father, fill us with this, that our hearts might be enlivened with the grace of Christ, for we pray in his name. Amen.